Everybody and welcome to Sonic Talk number 358. Last week was 357. If you might have seen my little uh, pun on Magnum there, because you know, f- feeling lucky, I just thought I had to do it with my dirty Harry. Uh, uh, is it Lalo Schifrin who did the music for that? I think it was, wasn't it? Anyway. It's irrelevant now, because now I'm rambling. Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to everybody in our fulsome chat room. Yes, I'll say it again. I'll say it proud. Uh, we have a lot of people uh, joining us this week. That's great. And also, I'm just about to turn on the live streaming. So if you probably missed this, I'll put that on now. So you'll see it on the front page as well for a fulsome even more fulsome chat room. So uh, I want to say thank you very much to Isotope for sponsoring the show. Uh, we have news of last week's winner of Isotope RX3, uh, which we run a competition every week at the moment, and uh, there will be details for how to win your very own copy of RX3 this week. Much along the same lines, you will need to have a Twitter account, so you've probably got about 20 minutes to go and sign up if you want to find uh, to be in with a chance. Anyway, so thank you very much. This week we're joined by... We've got a full a full complement of... Of, uh, of Skypees. I'm going to start uh, with, let's start with uh, Dave Spears. We haven't seen Dave Spears for a while. Dave Spears there in uh, his synth cave where he collects all manner of analog antique equipment. You always look, you always look, re- I mean, what, what's wrong with saying that? You've got loads of them, okay? You're a synth collector. Just be, say it loud and proud. It's fine. G4 software, of course. It's that idea of a collector, isn't it? Okay. Um, oh. One who Enthusiast. sort of things and never never uses no, them. No, well, that's yeah. not true. You do use them, though, don't you? A synth nerd geek. I don't know. Yes. Anyway, yes. There's more coming. <laughs> Whoa. Anything you can talk about? Uh, you started buying up NAF 80s digital equipment yet? Well, weirdly, I did the, uh, I did the valuation for probate of a guy, strangely enough, who lived about five miles away from here and who sadly died. Uh, but the relatives asked me to do a kind of probate valuation. And there was naturally, there was a couple of things in there that we wanted, but we haven't got yet. And actually, they're talking to me about maybe uh, disposing of the collection, which is a, such a really hard thing for me to do because this guy was completely passionate about sequential circuit stuff. So there's kind of everything from the five, the pro one, six track, multi track, Tom. And I really, and they, and most of them came from wine country or wine county. So I really wanted to keep those as a kind of entire collection, but we didn't. Well, I don't, I don't know whether we can do that. I think that might be a step too far, but I did buy, in fact, last week, uh, when I wasn't here, I was, we were off purchasing a couple of things. Do you want to see? Oh yeah, of course I do. Well, they, they need some love and care, so they're not perfect yet, but. <gasps> Jupiter 8, okay, nice. Are you sure Jupiter that, that? Oh, it's a Jupiter 80. And a uh, white face. Lovely. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's where it went wrong. <laughs> yeah, this is a Jupiter 80. Yeah, we paid well over the odds for a Jupiter 80. Ah, oh, well, it could be collectible. Oh, no, well, that's really. Have you have you enjoyed the uh, it? What it could do? Have you been immersed in Jupiter 80ness? Well, it needs a lot of care. It's not. It's not functioning uh, very, very well at the minute. But actually, the guy who sold it to us has a Steiner Parker Synthicon Mark One for sale as well. Blimey! Uh, 
I have never seen such... He's actually a drummer, and he has... I mean, honestly, I'd be lying if I said there was probably at least 300 kits in his studio. Wow. And a thousand cymbals and things like octagons, challenge piano, Steinway concert grand, uh, what else? A beautiful Celeste that I really wanted to walk away with, but we couldn't really. I mean, Was I could it? have just spent. Oh, Neve, uh, EQs, oh. all the UA preamps. I mean, he literally set out to build his dream studio. And if you think I'm a hoarder, this guy really <laughs> takes the biscuit. He's, he's right. hoarding across multiple categories. Yeah, so well, he's downsizing. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Well, one man's downsize is another man's upsize, as they say, or perhaps don't say, but should. Well, anyway, Dave, thank you very much for joining us. Dave Spears, g4software.com. And we're also going to go to, um, I think I'll say, because we, we've got Diego Stocker with us, but I'll, I'll, I'll come to him last because he can then kind of, we can go into to what Diego has been up to, because that's one of the reasons he's here. We'll go, I think we'll go back to um, Rich Hilton, who's now an, less pixelated and has a much less uh, magnolia and magenta uh, a, a background behind him, because he was last time we spoke to him, he was in China, somewhere unpronounceable, where he'd just done a chic gig. So you're back, back on home turf now, right? Yes, I'm home. Uh, Rich Hilton, of course, is a uh, keyboard player with chic and also Noel Rogers' studio guy. So you're back on, back on the... Uh, the, the the usual work work routine now or are you traveling again shortly uh no we're home for a bit oh that must be nice yeah <laughs> excellent yeah, it's, lovely. it's actually a really nice time of year here so yes cool well glad to have you aboard also rich thank you very much for joining us and we'll also go to uh, mr mark tinley who's uh, as i said earlier in the pre-show is looking very uh, professional today uh, I suppose you could say those headphones were like a different kind of hat. You usually wear a, a fresh hat for us every week, and this is a pair of headphones. Yeah. And uh, is that an Audio Technica condenser by any chance? No, it's not. It's a PV. Oh, it's very nice, actually. It PV, sounds good. Something like that. I can't read it. Uh, Pro Pro M2. It does sound good. Yeah, you are sounding less because usually you've got a cl- you're holding a kind of Skype telephone to your ear for most of the show, which I imagine is probably a bit tiresome. Uh, it is. I was, uh, but I was doing something earlier, and I entered the Glastonbury Film Challenge, and then I had to do like a voiceover for it. So I set everything up. So I'm going through tubes today. <laughs> wow! So we got a tubed so mark. Good. Yeah. yeah, you look like you're about to to hit us with some sort of rock vocal. Maybe, maybe we we'll save that for the end. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Mark Tinley, of course, music technologist, creative thinker, uh, marktinley.co.uk. And now, finally, uh, we uh, join Mr. Diego Stocker, who's joining us bright and early from the west coast of the United States, where I'm guessing... Actually, you don't look as tired as last time you came on, so I'm guessing the hour has probably in your favour this time, at least, anyway. I'm getting used to it. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Diego Stocker, of course, <laughs> sound designer. Hey guys. I think superstar sound designer i think it's fair to say oh, come on well you know in, in our world i think it's you know i think it, i think it's a fair a fair thing to say look at you're rocking what's that behind you you've got a pair of adams and a pair of genelex there is that uh actually those are yeah genelex and the others are um it's from this company that um i don't know if they i think they're distributed in the u.s it's easy i the, the the engineer is a friend of mine ah yes and, it, uh, ESI. Yeah. right yeah and okay. and they sound really good you know they're they're kind of unknown at the moment but i think they will just become more popular by the time people have a chance to try them out is that a ribbon tweeter on it yeah yeah it's um whatever it is i'm not i'm not really (laughs) 
uh, I, I didn't really see the details, but they sound good. They sound crisp and, and they sound uh, they have plenty of volume and everything. Uh, it's, this is not the best demo. <laughs> but Fair enough. Of a Let's just talk of, about them. I get that. Forgive sometimes. me for just because it's kind of early. <laughs> that's all right. Not, I tell you what. I'm sometimes, not into demo mode. <laughs> no, that's no problem. So I, sometimes um, people ask us to review speakers. In fact, we've got some at the moment. We've got a pair of Tannoy's in, and I always find it sort of difficult to think about how I'm going to do it. I think I did one one sort of video review of speakers, but it, mm-hmm. you can kind of just go, look, here they are. They sound like this, and you describe the way that they sound. Which you may as well do that in words. I mean, obviously. Yeah, it, it, it's such a subjective uh, feeling about speakers, you know, because uh, you have the, the major brands and obviously they have a sound that it's recognizable. And then you have these other brands and, and the engineer is a friend of mine. So he explained me why they sound the way they sound and why he thinks they sound great. And uh, even though I don't know the details as he knows them, I, I agreed with him that they sound good. And I also have the, the smaller uh, version uh, which sound good too, you know. They're very and they're they're affordable, you know. They're excellent. Anyway. Always nice to have affordable speakers. Um, <laughs> I, there was a couple of things that I wanted to get out of the way because I did promise that I'd do this. Champs uh, uh, Original Trend, a, a store in the U. Uh, in I think they're in uh, Holland. Uh, I we met Champs at uh, the Music Messer, and he did some filming in the. Um, uh, dance music fair that was in Utrecht uh, when they released the Roland um, you know the new series of synths which I can't remember at the moment sorry my head's full of cold my memory's going uh, but he basically I also I just recently did a review of the Intelligel uh, Atlantis module and uh, Champs is a dealer for such things and he's offered very kindly a special voucher. So if you follow that URL, uh, you get 10% off stuff. And you enter, it, there's there's information on that page on how to claim your 10% if you're in Europe and just about to buy some modular, save 10%. So I thought, um, as a thank you to champs, so go and buy some stuff and make us look like we've got massive buying power. <laughs> anyway, um, so where were we this week? Oh, I'll, I'll talk about what Robbie had to say a bit, earlier, a bit later on. But... Um, Let's stop. So we'll go back to you, Diego, because you've been really... uh, Oh, that's not you. That's you, number three. Diego, uh, you've been very busy recently. You've been doing your your, uh, feed-forward sounds, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You've just released uh, another video about um, convolution processing. Uh, And I'll play a little bit of the video, and then maybe we can talk about all the other stuff that's come out of it. So let me just... Press the button. And perhaps the video will play. There it goes. Hey guys, this is a demo of Rhythmic Convolutions, which is a collection of impulse responses I designed specifically for the processing of rhythmic material. Let me show you what it is and how to use it. I'm going to start with a simple rhythmic track I built in live. What I'm using here is just for the purpose of this demo. There are several convolution engines available out there. And as far as the initial rhythmic part, it can be anything you want to process. A drum machine, real drums or percussions, beatboxing, even tonal instruments if they have a percussive quality. As you can see, my kick drum, snare and hi-hat sounds are on separate tracks so that each element can be processed in a different way. On the right side, you can see my return tracks each one containing a convolution engine with a different impulse response loaded in. 
And if you take a look on the left again, you will see that each element is sent to the return tracks with different levels. I'm going to activate the returns now. I'm not going to play all of that, but I thoroughly recommend that you check that out. That's uh, and is that something that you're kind of showing as? I mean, obviously, you've got uh, the, the the product, which is the convolution uh -huh. uh, processing, which is uh, a pack of kind of impulse responses, and yes. uh, you've recorded these with your. Um, with your extensive knowledge of uh, and uh, and unusual spaces and things available to you, um, well, the, the video is a demo basically because uh, I did the tutorial that is called convolution processing and it goes into you know more uh, details and also the technique is expanded into other things you know to to really make it more alive. Uh, but I got people asking me. Um, you know, I don't really have the time that you, <laughs> to create these input responses. I see that you explain how to do them, but why don't you just do it yourself? Because you seem to have a lot of, you know, sources or whatever. So I came up, you know, I'm going to do this collection, but I don't, I didn't want to do it as, uh, you know, just, all right, here's a bunch of input responses. You figure it out how to use it. I, I was intrigued by the idea of creating them for the processing of rhythmic material, because when you apply them, um, it creates a lot of additional rhythms inside and there's a lot of interactions that you cannot really imagine um, if you play with samples the way they are because when you play through convolution, it's a multiplication, it's a sum of different events, different elements, different rhythmic elements can go into the same convolution. So it, it's kind of an inspiring process uh, also for me uh, and, and, and obviously to show and to make people hear how these impulse responses uh, sound. I made a demo, which, you know, I, I, I like to do things properly. So I, I wanted to show them uh, how I set up my own sessions because I don't use one convolution engine at the same time. I use m multiple ones and I like to play them in real time uh, with them. And so this is what you see in the video. Excellent. I mean, the thing for me is I actually had no idea that convolutions could be so complicated. I thought that they were oh. just, you know, a pop in a space <laughs> and that was it. I didn't realise. And that's the thing that I found really interesting. So the, there are rhythmic elements to to the convolution samples that you're creating. That, that's just... How did, did you kind of like figure that out and think, hey, this, will be, this yeah. might be interesting or is that something that's, that's you know, a known thing? Right. Well, convolution, convolution engine... Engines are used on a variety of products, and sometimes it's not even advertised, you know, or sometimes it is, uh, because basically you can recreate, uh, you know, the the impulse response of an amplifier or of, of or a room or whatever, and, and then transform the sound through that. But in this specific case, when I was working on the first video, the video that it's the tutorial, I realized that certain impulse responses they don't really have a they don't really sound as a reverb, but they introduced some sort of uh, rhythmic interaction with the first, with the original uh, rhythmic element. And so I thought maybe I can just expand this element and, and really see how far I can go. And, and so I started creating a lot of elements from uh, organic and actual materials like rocks, bricks, uh, pieces of wood, uh, logs, uh, paper. And, and there's a motion, there's a movement in any of these things. And then when, when you apply, 
when you use them as impulse responses, the original element, let's say the bass drum, it's processed not only in terms of sound, not only in terms of the timbre changing, but also in terms of rhythmics, uh, rhythm, rhythms added to it, because the impulse response is not just a straight uh, um, reverb, which is basically a spike and, and, and noise following the spike. It's basically fragmented and, and you see peaks. And so these peaks are translated uh, and applied over the elements that you're processing. That's really uh, interesting. That, that, uh, that actually, there's a, 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 a comment in the chat room. Hellasphere asks, uh, can you tempo sync impulse responses? Because obviously, if you've got a rhythmic element to that response, how yeah. does that work in terms of what you're feeding into it tempo-wise? Yeah, it is possible because basically a lot of convolution engines, they have uh, parameters called size. And uh, that size, basically, it's, it's transposition. It takes the beats uh, up and down. So you can tune the size to fit exactly. the tempo. So is yeah, there is and, there a, and, is there a direct relationship to that, or do you have to kind of figure it out yourself? You know, you can't do like a quarter note clock sync. Or, do you see what I mean? Well, the convolution engines they they don't really. I mean, the ones available on the market now they they were never really thought as rhythmic tools, so they don't offer a simple way to display. Okay, this is your original tempo, and this is your tempo that you're going to so you do it by ear but it's such an easy thing and the fact is when you're tuning it by ear you are listening you're right. not going by a data so by listening you might end up with something that you thought oh if i just typed in the tempo maybe i i wasn't going to get this but because you're going you're moving it down or up you go, oh, through, I moving like through it right yeah right it, it's a more intuitive and musical process you know that's really interesting. I know, Mark. You've been very, uh, you've been very vociferous about impulse responses and 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 working in with odd acoustic spaces, and what have you. I mean, have you experimented in using things like in in this way? Because I, I, like I said, it's something I've not heard of before. I mean, how do you use them? Um, I never thought to do it with percussion stuff. Actually, I have utilised uh, acoustic modeler for imposing the sound of one sound upon another so in a sort of similar way to that you might use a vocoder to make a voice sound like strings speaking uh, i've used it to take um the sound of someone speaking and make them sound like they're sort of disappearing down some kind of etheric uh, tunnel it's, it's really i mean you can sort of create really good samples using it and then i i create samples and then i Put the, uh, lay them across the keyboard and play them. So I've used it for much more ambient things, and not for such percussive things. That's interesting. Um, so and the way it yeah, works is, if you do an impulse response of a room, if I if I do this in this room, you hear lots of early reflections, and it and it samples each one of those early reflections and creates an event from it, and then it basically takes the reverb tail and creates an event from that. So so if the if you put in the same way that the space you're actually in is percussive, but it's a very tight, very short, very fast rhythm, the, the early reflections in a room. Um, if you put percussive things into uh, a convolution engine and use them as an impulse response, the convolution engine's just going to uh, kind of recreate it as a massive room with lots of longer reflections in it. Hmm, that's very interesting. But actually, the... The way the convolution engine works, 
is uh, the, the trick in creating impulse responses, the way I found out, is creating them with a correct uh, frequency range. Because when you use a sound that has a certain frequency spike, you're going to end up with a huge resonant peak and pretty much that's it. I mean, it will just sound unusual and it will not be really... So even when you record metals, for example, metals are tricky because they are... You know, they have resonant peaks. That's how they sound, the mm. way they sound. So the trick is to carve out and to do, um, you know, multiband compression on the impulse response in a way that when I put it inside the convolution engine, the sound is nice without even doing anything. Then on top of that, you can also apply your own EQ. You can emphasize the I end. So the, the trick is to really create them in a way where the, the, the rhythm comes out and not too much of the frequency peaks. Ah, okay. So you, you pre-process it quite extensively. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah right. There's a lot of work before I mean, they uh, are... You know. If I was going to make an impulse response in a room, one way of making it is to, uh, is to go in there with a starter pistol. If I fire a starter pistol in a room, it basically it makes a sound which has every frequency at roughly the same level, so almost white noise. So the convolution engine is expecting to see something close to white noise. So as uh, Diego says, if you put something in that's got lots of resonant peaks in it in places where it's not expecting to see them, it's going to come out sounding gnarly and weird. Ah, interesting. Rich, are you... Uh, are you uh, you, you use convolution reverb in your work. I know that because um, audio ease isn't that convolution, but it, it's it's kind of a very high end one. Do you use that kind of stuff? Yes, I do. Uh, do you find but not in the ways that Diego is talking about, and not specific to rhythmic oriented applications. But one of the tools I do use that I like quite a bit uh, that gives me a lot to choose from here. It's called Futzbox. It's by McDSP. Right. And he's got um, convolutions of all kinds of different things. Now, in his case, it tends to be speakery, playbacky kind of things. Right, mostly. so small. Not, yeah. not water rushing over rocks or that sort of thing. But so I haven't done any custom uh, convolution recordings for this purpose, but I have applied the ones they've given me to various things that don't involve using it for reverb purposes ah okay so that the, the creation of sort of interesting spaces and and almost eq it's interesting because you can you can kind of conv can you convolute electronics if you see what i mean rather than physical yes and he Definitely. and they do yeah right yes and they do and uh and every single kind of speaker known to man and certain kinds of acoustical spaces and things like that That's which do provide some of those changing timbres that Diego's talking about because, as he says, the world is an aesthetic place, and once you start working with uh, live space like that, things there is some sort of subtle motion to it. Wow! So, how hard is it to make? I mean, I'm not expecting you to give away any family secrets, but in terms of making impulse responses, do you need specific tools for it, or is it a question of saving the right full, full file format and importing it into the right, you know, the the right program? Right. Well, by now, this technology has been around enough that there aren't that many secrets out there. The, a, a convolution, okay, an impulse response is a technical name that is properly used when there is an impulse and the response, and then the convolution engine uses it to generate a reverb. Uh, in my case, they're, they're samples. They're audio files 
and they are called impulse responses just to make clear that they are meant to be used in a convolution engine. But the 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 secret, okay, there are companies that create uh, high quality reverbs and they have their own uh, you know set of techniques how they arrange the microphones, uh, which. Uh, um, Mark was mentioning the, the the starter pistol. That's one of the ways. Then there are other ways to generate a wide band, uh, um, wide noise impulse response. But in my case, it's about recording elements in a certain way and then carve out frequencies that I know are going to be problematic. Also, is about making them that they don't sound uh, too repetitive. So there's some element of uh, uh, randomness in it. So when you play them. You can feel sometimes there's a note, sometimes there's a uh, element that it feels like it's, for example, you play it and it feels like it's going through barley, you know, right. and it becomes gra- granular, but <laughs> right. it doesn't. But it's but it's not mushy like a reverb. You can actually feel the shh kind of thing, and that's that's the difficult part because you really have to figure out how to make the input response because it's it's always a guess. I you say okay, I record this element, then I process through convolution, and then you play it back, and you go, hmm, <laughs> not such <laughs> it's a not the way. <laughs> it's not the way I thought because it's not as intuitive. It's uh, right. you you make it and you try it out, and then you you tweak yeah. it back at, until it actually it, sounds the way you imagined it. It's interesting. It's almost it, it feels kind of similar in a way to uh, vocoding, where you have a carrier and a modulator. It'd be great, perhaps, if you could get. What, what the world needs, perhaps, is a real-time convolution engine, so you can feed two real-time signals into them and 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 convolute each other. If you see what I mean, that one. Might, yeah, that might. Yeah, be. I know what you mean. That sounds and, like it would but be. But the problem is the CPU, because right. you know there's calculation. That's why, uh, as far as I know, there aren't uh, convolution engines out there that allow you to modify, uh, for example, the pitch or the size of the input response in real time. Because it's calculating in real time. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, so basically the pitch is there, and then there's an incoming signal, which is your dry signal, and it's being processed, but you cannot change the behavior of the input response in real time. There, there is one, mm-hmm. input, the, one convolution engine from uh, Melda Productions that allow you to uh, add the two input responses at the same time and then cross over between them. Right, so they're, so, sort of pre-re- they're, they're pre-calculated. Like and so you can modulate that transition between one impulse response and the other and allows you to do more interesting effects. But uh, I think there's room for yeah, it sounds experiments like and improvement. Yeah, definitely. In the Dave Spears, is there an element of any convolution in any synth modeling or is it more down to the component level? Because it sounds like, you know, you could almost, if you're convoluting an electronics path, is that... Is that a known method in terms of synth modeling? Is that something that you would employ in any of your stuff, or would you go a different route? You're without... talking to completely the wrong person, aren't you? <laughs> talking to the person who goes, when, when, when? Oh, that doesn't sound very good. Can we do that again? Or, that sounds brilliant. How do you do that? Um, well, you don't really want to know, yeah. <laughs> there is an element of that. I'm kind of constantly fielding emails and inquiries all day from programmers saying, oh, I'm at this point and I'm at this point. In fact, I replied to one yesterday. He said it was failing in a particular area or something he was working on. I said, it sounds, it sounds like a pet. It sounds like the name of a pet. And he came back saying, are you calling my software a dog? <laughs> <laughs> which was funny because I was actually working on a patch which Chris had called Hairy Growler, ah. <laughs> which then spawned a whole other. Anyway, yeah, sorry. Um, 
no, you are really asking the wrong problem. Uh, all uh, wrong person. All of our stuff is obviously uh, component based. Right. Okay. Oh, but I find this really fascinating. Actually, I'd just quite like to sit here and listen to Diego talk some more because I understand the whole rhythmic possibilities of it. But it's one of those things that. Having seen it, I go, oh, God, why didn't I think of that? Like pretty much everything Diego comes up with. Ah, God, it's so good. Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) So, So, yeah, I'm just going to be quiet and listen. Does it sound like that there's – I mean, there is – I don't know. I mean, how much processing does one of these things use? I mean, you were showing that, you know, you had a fairly substantial number of instances in your demos there. What kind of – what were you using in that? I I couldn't quite see the name um, when I looked at it. The the name of – that is Convolution uh, Reverb Pro, which is uh, the Convolution engine that comes with the Max for Live in in Ableton Live. Right. And it seems to be working really well. It can handle a lot of CPU. I'm using it on a laptop, so it's not like I'm using a NASA (laughs) mainframe or anything. Uh, The input responses themselves are short, so the length of the input response also determines how much uh, CPU you need because it's uh, Uh. based on the length. Yeah, so the shorter... Uh, the easier it is for your computer to handle multiple. Uh, and also, the longer they are, the mushier and less defined is the sound because it starts to become a, you know, it's like multiplying this tiny little impulse on a very long sample. You, It's like creating a very long reverb. But yeah. now, when you start to apply a lot of rhythmic melanins on top of that, it just becomes, un, uh, you know, undefined. I see. Uh, it's a, I mean, thing, it, yeah, sorry, carry on. I was going to say there is a way to combine the analog synth world and the convolution processing because a lot of uh, analog synths, they create this fantastic and, and really bizarre rhythmic uh, elements that you can create just by twitching knobs and stuff like that. Then if you sample that and you put it inside a convolution engine, you can create a you know, an input response based on that. So there is a way to join these two worlds. They're not that far, you know. Oh, the, the, the possibilities of, I'm just sort of thinking all these, if you had somebody who created a dedicated convolution environment that, you know, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. so what? It's going to use up half my available CPU, but that's okay because, you know, I could maybe have a dedicated machine for it. You could almost, you could have, A, you could have real-time stuff, but B, you could almost have like wavetable access. So you're moving around the part of the co- the impulse response that you're using dynamically somehow. There's yeah, just all yeah. sorts of ways you could yeah, do. Yeah, that's so- a very interesting idea. I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't think there's a synth out there yet that uses convolution uh, uh, engines, uh, uh, they use convolution technology as a performing instrument. But there is now the technology and the CPU power to create something like that. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't possible 10 years ago, but now it is. That's, you can see how many I use on a single session. You know, that's very interesting. I, I, I do know of a company who are kind of interested in experimenting with audio in that way, and that might bring us on to uh, a, a, a point at which it's uh, time to, to to welcome our sponsor. And also, um, after the particular message, we can get down to the nitty gritty of the winner of the last competition and the next competition, which I will give out. So I'm going to play the ad and read the stuff. So here it comes. Isotope, of course, sponsors of the show, RX3, which is a complete audio repair system. I mean, it really does have an enormous number of tools. 
perfectly suited for audio engineering, recording, post-production, sound design, archiving, broadcasting, forensic, and more. Uh, you can remove or reduce reverb with vocals, instruments, or more, or accentuate it as well, because you've also got can take everything in the opposite direction as well with the de-reverb, mod- de-reverb module, clean up dialogue on the fly with the dialogue denoiser. It's a new standard. It's very sort of low impact, so you can do that. You've got all sorts of things with RX3, uh, things like multi-tab documents, so you can do lots and lots of comparisons, and you know, which is very important when you're getting down to the nitty gritty. Uh, monitor your audio and loudness using Insight, a spectral repair, denoise, declip, declick, decrackle, and more. Pinpoint problems faster with the Spectrogram and Spectrum Analyzer and easily finesse your sound with dedicated audio enhancement modules like EQ gain, channel, ops, and pitch and time. There really is an enormous amount to it. And uh, so we're now actually also going to be saying... Um, Last week, we had a competition uh, which was uh, we asked people to tweet out the hashtag uh, RX3 Audio Rescue uh, and you send it to at Sonic Nick and also at Isotope Inc. And this week, we have a new competition. Uh, you could win it. I actually asked, let's go for the, uh, let's have the winner of the last one. I forgot to mention that. Um, the guy is called. Uh, at Howling Terror, so that's his Twitter handle, and he is the winner of Isotope RX3. So if you make yourself known to me and um, send me your email address, I can get the Isotope Fairy to bestow the RX3 on you. The Isotope Fairy is in a particularly good mood because she's just come back from holiday. I can verify. So um, let me just say, this week we're going to be doing the same thing. Uh, you can win Isotope RX3 once again. What you need to do is tweet the hashtag RX3 No More Noise. Seems fairly self-explanatory. RX3, no more noise. And you want to at Sonic Nick and at Isotoping. And what happens is I get up a little search that basically, you know, looks for that hashtag. And if you fulfill the the criteria by mentioning me and by mentioning Isotope, then you get put in a list and we can't, I, I generate a random number and I count it up from the bottom. So the first one comes in and that's the person that wins. It's really straightforward. Not very scientific, but fair. Firm, but fair. So please do. And if you want to just check out Isotope RX3, go to isotope.com forward slash RX3 and there's a 10-day demo for all of their stuff. So, you know, go crazy for it. Um, I feel there's still more to say about this. I mean, I don't know what... Um, do you think it's a bit niche, this, Diego? I mean, do you think perhaps that um, this this level of... It, 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 because, I mean, the, the stuff that we heard where your stuff, I mean, you're very... Uh, there's an experimental aspect to what you're doing and it's kind of an unusual sound design thing. Is there, is there a sort of, outside of the regular kind of smooth, beautiful reverbs, is there a more, uh, are there other avenues that you can explore that have, or are you just kind of starting to scratch the surface here yourself, do you think? Well, there's a, obviously I, I did 200 of them and wow. they seem to cover, you know, I, I divided them into 10 families, you know, like I have minerals, uh, liquid glass, there is a combination of liquid movements and glass, uh, and then there's uh, grains, which is sand, barley, sugar, uh, even me biting on a meringue. <laughs> they created a very nice... A meringue, crunchy, nice. <laughs> yeah, crunchy and, 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 and grainy at the same time. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been the same if I used an apple, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, so there's, a, there's a lot to do, you know. The, the, now, That's obviously, cool. I, I kind of figure out the a faster way uh, of doing them because I know what to do when it comes to specific things and so when I record I know how to record them and I know what to fix to make them sound good because I didn't want to present something that is presented as and from here you got to do like hours of tweaking from here you just use them right away but to answer your question if this is a niche thing or not if you think about it 
uh, when people buy a plugin, they don't really see what's going on underneath. They just play the sounds and they say, all right, I like it or I don't like it. Because I'm not you know, able to code a plugin myself, I basically gave you the underneath, <laughs> I gave you the what's underneath and you can use it in a way that you like on whatever plugin that you might already have. And, and, and so I don't think it's a niche thing because everybody's using sounds to do creative things. Uh, there's still a huge uh, room for exploration for, you know, sounds for virtual instruments and stuff like that. This is just a, a different approach, an approach that I can produce on my own, you know, and, and, but Absolutely no. It's, I mean, it just it also sounds to me like there is, like we said, you know, there is really room for an instrument that could take some of the, the things that you're doing and give it even more, you know, legs. You know, do some really interesting things on top of that and make actually your job easier and to do even more kind of crazy and off the wall and interesting things. Yeah, you know, like in everything, like uh, in every of these things, like virtual instruments, even if it's analog uh, things. There's a, a certain level of uh, passion that you put behind something and it allows you to really figure out how to do things. Because the technology, it's out there. Yeah. But uh, I've seen a lot of uh, custom input responses across the years and they are not presented in, in the way I present mine. And, and I think presenting them specifically for rhythmic elements uh, divided into themes allow you to basically load them and, and you say, okay, I want to make this thing sound like it's kind of got a wood. And this is a way to do it. You That's know? really interesting. Do you, how, how, big are the, how, how big in terms of length are these samples? Because you're saying if you make it too long, oh, what are we talking small. about? They're small. The, 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 whole, the whole folder is about 50 megabytes. Oh, right. So they're kind of very short. Yeah, because so you see, and this is another thing, because there's a lot, of, a lot of products that I see in the market. They go, we present our files in... Uh, uh, 96 uh, and you know 100 <laughs> yeah okay I mean you I can sell you an apple this big it's still an apple you know <laughs> but if it's a good or bad apple that what really matters you know and, and so the the size of a file it's the same thing that came up with the with the length of my tutorials people said well I don't know if $9.99 it's worth for a 10 minutes uh, tutorial. Well, if the... I'm not, you, <laughs> but if my tutorial doesn't start with, hi, this is Diego Stocco and I'm living in sunny Burbank and today is uh, this kind of time. So, I mean, if I don't use that time to talk about things that make no sense, of course the tutorial is going to be tighter because it's uh, just yeah, I see what you're saying. on the thing that matters, you know. I was more curious actually about how long an impulse response has to be in terms of uh, time to, to, you know, to be useful. Be, it can be a third of a second, oh, it can okay. be a second, but it really depends the kind of effect that you're trying to create with that particular element because if you're trying to, I mean, some of them can be two seconds, but they are creating a long tail. So right. you want to use them and actually use that, that tail that is coming out of the convolution engine. Otherwise, you're, if you're adding, let's say you're working on, on a track that is really fast, and you use long uh, input responses, it's going to start to sum up and create confusion. Right. So there, there, there's a logic in how you use them, you know. Interesting it's, stuff. Sorry, it's who was pretty much. Yeah, it's me. It's pretty much the same as putting way too much reverb on everything. 
If you think of it as being, if you think of it as being like a reverb, you wouldn't put reverb on it or really long reverb on everything because you just end up with a complete uh, ununderstandable mess. But you might put lots of early reflection type reverbs on different things. So interesting. Think of it like that. Well, I think we are convoluted convolution chat has probably reached its uh, its, uh, its end, and I wanted to introduce some other aspects to it and uh, bring some of our rest of our panel in. And one of the things that this, and this just really struck me because I, when I was uh, working various producing various bands and kind of getting involved in, in recording projects, I remember this whole period of pre-production that was kind of part of the process and it sort of thought what's actually happened to that now because then it used to be stuff like you know you'd rehearse with the band you figure out the keys you maybe do some tempo maps you tighten up an arrangement and then you go in the studio and you you do your thing it's a very different world now perhaps or is perhaps that the same kind of stuff i was going to start with you rich really because you're recording stuff you know on a regular basis uh you know what? What is the what is the flow of inf- you know uh, uh, of workflow through is the pre-production? How would you understand pre-production? You know, in in terms of what you do now, it all gets wrapped up pretty much together now, so that it is included in the writing process. Unless the writing is conducted by a room full of people with instruments in their hands, then typically in my world, it's conducted as an interaction with parts that are being recorded to computer right whether it's you know creating a rhythm section from the ground up or creating an orchestration from the ground up so the writing sort of becomes the pre-production because you're choosing sounds as you go now Mm. it's not just the three guitars the three guys have in the room it's whatever you have in your computer to adapt to the thing so if the writer says, I want to hear a Fender Rhodes play underneath me going like this. You put up some kind of Fender Rhodes for the moment. And you know that you can go back and change it later. And if it's, uh, I want to hear, you know, the oboe playing this, then you can pretty quickly get up an oboe and make that happen. So it all kind of gets wrapped up together. And it's not very long into that process that the mixing begins as well. Because every day at the end of the process, you have to hear something that sounds like music. It just can't be a random collection of sounds applied to parts. So it's changed. It's not so much of a timeline as it once was from, you know, pre-production into, you know, recording into embellishing. It's all kind of wrapped up into one process now. Mm, that's a good, very good point. I guess also, Dave, I mean, back back in the day when, you know, some of us might have some of our own technology and then we would go and take it into the studio. We'd do it on our own time in a rehearsal room, which was obviously much cheaper by the hour than going into the studio and being completely unprepared for the process. Whereas because it all seems to take place in roughly the same place all the time, that maybe is why that process might have changed in entirety. Because, I mean, you you don't need to do pre-production for your own things in your own studio because you're always working, if you see what I mean. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. What's the question? There wasn't one, really. It was just a sort of introduction so you could... Uh, <laughs> I don't have to ask a question for everything, surely. <laughs> no, I was just thinking, actually, pre-production always used to start with Click winding up one or more of the band members. That was seeing about how far you could push the button before you got told off by usually the tour manager or the promoter going, for God's sake, it's his art, let him do it. 
Um, things like sellotaping mark trees up and stuff like that. That always went down well. No, I mean, it's been a long time since I've been involved in <laughs> in setting up a tour. But, I mean, then it was just like Rich said, it was pretty much everything from now. I mean, bear in mind that I've only, I'm only really involved with electronic acts now for any of that kind of work. You know, most of the work's done beforehand. It's literally just kind of making sure that the flow works, that the BPMs are correct, that actually there's no magic, there's no dance where people are going to bump into each other when they're kind of muting and demuting things and moving stuff around. Um, it's really that and just kind of just honing things really until and until really the star turn is happy when the star turn goes okay I'm happy it's usually about the second night of the tour but um you like to try and get that all squared away in production rehearsals yeah well that's true I mean you're talking about I uh... mean normally it's sorry in the old days really production rehearsals were generally the first time that the band got together with big PA and right. possibly even lighting. I mean, we'd have, we'd have lighting production rehearsals and stuff like that, and everything could kind of come together and be coordinated. So again, it was really honing it. Now, particularly with electronic acts, most of that work's already done, you know, during the course of writing the album or collating the tunes to go out live and stuff like that, or collating the stems. So yeah, interesting. Now it is. I mean, you raise an interesting point. I mean, I was thinking uh, more of the the studio experience, but actually, you know, there isn't an awful. I mean, I've, I've done the last my my last my probably my last pre production gigs have been taking the the studio album and making it ready, or you know, enabling a band to perform it, and that is an incredibly complicated. That's a much more complicated process than just preparing the click tracks and the sounds or whatever. That's why I don't it's do real, it. You can get some brilliant moments out of that, though. You know, actually, I love working. Obviously, I did this Debbie Harry tour a million years ago, and there was this moment where I was kind of sat there with the multi-track, taking the CR78 groove from, say, something like Heart of Glass, and you kind of they were real pinch me moments because you kind of sit there and go, Jesus, you know, if I was if I'd have thought I'd be doing this as a teenager, you kind of go, Whoa! And and I love that transition from that uh, obviously there's a warm-up gig but the first night of the tour is usually well that can be uh, kill or cure but actually there's a real joy in that either way because then you understand who the kind of pros are on the tour and if there is an issue then they solve those really quickly and i love that kind of on the fly and i love working with people who are really accommodating like that debbie for example was just brilliant you know something wasn't happening with something that was driven by sequences all of a sudden she could switch to, you know, right, rock and roll mode. Okay, hit, do this song. And that, for me, was just brilliant. Yeah, I could just bypass it, I suppose. I know, Mark, I mean, I'm guessing you kind of probably dealing with both uh, aspects of that, but when you're working with Duran, I mean, sort of pre-production before you go into the studio, you know, maybe working on demos and stuff so that they're ready to kind of expand in the studio, but then also going out on the road as well. So you get both ends of the process. Do you think that's changed? I haven't done it for a while, so I don't know how much it's changed. Um, the, I know some front of house sound engineers, and I think pre-production for them is all about writing everything onto their, is it a wave stick or a USB, USB stick? Yeah, USB stick. lock or whatever, gold lock or something. So I think pre-production for them is all about actually having the gig completely working so that you can just go wherever and stick the key in the desk and bang the whole thing comes up and then it 
works in exactly the same way, whatever room you're in. Um, and but for me, uh, for me, it was always about the sounds, getting all the sounds together, sampling things off the multitrack, like Dave was saying, like you know the drum, the drum box on Planet Earth, or uh, uh, the the sample, uh, and actually noticing how the producer who produced that record put those things together and what things have gone together on what tracks on a 24 track master to make it to condense it down to 24 tracks that always fascinated me oh yeah um, but it, and, and for me my pre-production if i'm doing anything pre-production is always about gathering sounds if i'm ever doing a project it's always about gathering sounds finding all the things I want to hear and knowing where they are and having the machine set up so I can just go, oh, I want a bit of that now. And, yeah, you know, that's interesting. It. It's maybe, I'm, I'm, maybe you agree, Diego, with a project you create a palette of sounds to then work with, and that's kind of the pre-production, right? Yeah, I think now the, the necessity of preparing the studio, it's not as uh, prominent as it used to be because back then, I mean, not that I was there, <laughs> but I've been there a little bit just in between the transition. But obviously, when you needed to prepare a studio, you needed to have everything ready for the recording session. But now you already have the studio at your home, so it doesn't really matter. So I think pre-production in these days is more like a mental process. You think, okay, I'm going to create this, and for this project, I'm going to need this kind of sound. So maybe you do a little bit of browsing through sounds, you start to take a look on the internet, see if there's a new plugin or things like that. I think it's a more more like a mental process because you don't need to justify, I mean, I think pre-production, and you tell me if I'm, if I'm right, was to justify the costs of going into a studio. You don't want to spend a day in a studio with a uh, rate, a studio rate, just to say, oh, should we do this? Should we do that? Did you make this track? Is this ready to roll? You know? Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, that's very true. Uh, I mean, I guess also, I mean, the other thing, um, you know, the, the same, the, in a similar process, that the kind of notion of creating a demo and then doing it again, you know, that seems to have been gone by the way. So I don't know. I mean, I guess, Rich, you know, you must have, you know, the boss must come in with various different sort of noodles and ideas. I mean, he may well be able to remember it all and just play it again, you know, but there must be when people come in with stuff that then needs to be worked on. I mean, there's essentially that's kind of pre-production or it's part of the demo process or is that kind of pretty much, you know, used to get the A&R guy saying, yeah, great demo, let's do it properly now, you know, so, and that sort of seems to be, that's not really a something that happens so much, apart from maybe if you're just doing an orchestral, uh, synth, you know, a synthesis orchestral bit just to kind of demonstrate the arrangement and then getting an orchestra to do it. Well, it also depends on whether you know at the front what you're doing. For example, if you're doing a cover song, you have some model of what you're about to do. If you're beginning a new recording for people, like a pop song, it could come in in various stages of preparedness or not preparedness. And I do know there's a story told about by Kathy Sledge about when they walked in to sing We Are Family that uh, the verses, he was still writing the verses in the studio. In other words, some things did get worked out in the studio and benefited from having been worked on in that way, but Diego is absolutely right that, for the most part, pre-production involves saving costs and being more efficient when you get to the higher cost place, which is the recording studio back then, and everybody's got their instruments on and tape is mm -hmm. rolling. 
It's interesting how that process maybe changed because uh, obviously now, uh, you know, you've got two schools. You've got the kind of maybe the national record, Nashville recording model where, you know, the band know the songs and maybe the musicians are so absolutely slick. You know, you're Carol Kay, who could just basically go, all right, there's the chord chart, right, let's, let's cut a record, bang, there we go. And you just rely on the instinct and their ability and their knowledge to pull it off in the moment kind of more or less there's obviously going to be some preparation but in many cases if you listen we we, we uh there was a whole bunch of documentaries uh, uh interviews with carol which are fantastically interesting i mean she's the woman who's played bass and made you know thousands hundreds of records and just kind of on the spur of the moment effectively just turn them into not very good to something memorable but then you've also got the scenario where um you know, everything's prepared and the producer, I don't know, say maybe Eno has a way of doing it where he'll just bring somebody in and also almost obfuscate completely what you actually need to play so that he'll get something completely unexpected out of the player. And also, you know, and that's, so there's, a, you know, almost you're going in the yes. opposite direction. Well, it's a great balance that one needs to strike. You do need to let the guy offer you his vision of what he's hearing that you didn't hear, this is one of the most valuable things I learned working with Nile Rodgers, is let the guy give you what he's got first before you start twisting it into what you thought you were going to ask for. Right. Because so, you might get something better than what you thought you had. Yeah, which is, I guess, the idea of having, you know, that's the point of having a musician in the place. And then, you know, yeah, and if it doesn't work out, that, that's, an, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting idea. Um, I'm just having a look at the topics now. I, I'm, uh, there was another one which was, but I don't think there's perhaps time to do it, which was, there was, it, it was more a question of, there was a whole, well, there was a whole series of, uh, there was an article about um, how Eric Prids, who's a Swedish dance producer, had used a, there's a snare that he uses, which is a very signature sound. And, you know, there was a, there was a spoof story that said he was suing, <laughs> he was suing like thousands of people for songwriting royalties because they all use the Prids snare in their breakdown. And essentially it's the, the snare on beat four of, of a bar that explodes into space. And then, you know, you start, it's like a drop down, but there's not a drop down with a big snare. Anyway, you know, it, but what, what was interesting about the whole idea of that is this notion of looking for that sound. You know, that sound which, which I thought those days were sort of over a little bit because everybody could get pretty much every sound that was already created unless it's massively complicated to create. Um, and it made me think, well, what is it that create? What is, what is it about a sound or a moment within a record that makes it almost it's not a sample but it's a signature that other people want to emulate all the time and it's kind of okay to do that because we talked a little bit about you know sampling d50s and what have you and it there's a really sort of blurred line between all that and i'm going to go to you dave because you tell that great story about the finding the snare you know that the fairlight snare you're auditioning thousands of them or whatever is there a you know when you hear a sound sometimes you go oh that's going to be big do you know what i mean you you expect to hear all that production technique you can expect to hear it i mean it's hard to make anything that fresh these days but there must be something way of doing it surely blimey um <laughs> just a just a little kind of not too broad a topic <laughs> well it's interesting in that you know obviously we've been doing the mellotron stuff for years and and in fact, I, I did a thing for Music Radar a couple, a, a, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was only <laughs> announced. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, they just asked a couple of really interesting questions, actually, and it was about this retro, you know, is, it, is, it, is this whole retro fetishism, has it got completely out of control and is it just a kind of fantasist's dream or is there any kind of validity in it? And I, I think there is because, 
And somebody else who was on there raised an interesting comment, and that was about the fact that some of these tones appear nostalgic, or they are nostalgic, and it's that nostalgic element that, and, and, and it sort of mirrored what we'd had with the Tron when we were doing stuff through retail and Guitar Center in America. What a lot of the salespeople were coming in saying uh, that they'd heard that flute sound, but they didn't know what the instrument was. They wanted that sound. So they'd actually come in with a kind of MP3 player and maybe Strawberry Fields or something on it and go, what's that? What's that? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting in that there was this entire generation who were obviously, you know, older, uh, younger than me who'd grown up without the knowledge of that sound is that. And when this topic came up, and obviously this snare, and you do hear, you know, the repeated sounds over and over again. And I wondered at the time whether it's to do with, you know, particularly with dance stuff, let's say it's a great holiday you're having and you go to this club and there's a particularly banging tune and you just, and for some reason it lodges in your psyche and it's just the tones that are associated with that, that when you hear it again, I don't know, it just sort of stirs something from within. But then on the other hand, I have to temper that with, when I do patches for synths, sometimes you can come up with a patch and you go, that's new, that sounds fresh, it sounds really original, but everything for me boils down to, is it playable musically? And sometimes that's where I start to feel old <laughs> because I'm always approaching it from, you know, if I sit in front of a keyboard and play along with a patch that I've created, if it doesn't work, for me, I'll try it on two or three different keyboards. If it doesn't work for me dynamically and all the rest of it, then it probably goes on the kind of also ram. But when I find, and I have found a couple in the last week of something we for something we're working on, and I've gone, there's a magic about that sound, and mm. I don't know what it is, but for me, it's the playability and the emotional appeal of it. So yeah, that's all I can tell you really. Well, no, that's and that's a very good, uh, well put case. It's interesting because you know that there was a lot of speaking of playability. You know, there was that whole period of where, and there, there, there still is that kind of um, chord sequence, which is effectively transposition of a sampled chord, which is what we're hearing a lot in that. Dear, 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 mm. dear, you know, there, there is a, a three chord sequence which is derived from that whole thing in the sort of nineties, where you'd sample a triad or, or maybe another chord and just play it over one, three, five. And it would have that sequence of events. And now we're hearing that, you know, with fifths and what have you. But anyway, Diego, you know, you are a sound designer. You know, that's your thing. Are you are you kind of trying to find that hit? You know, I mean, obviously, as a sound designer, if you re release a library and it becomes the one that everybody wants to, to, to score film music, say, for instance, because, you know, contact libraries can be hits like that as well, can't they? You get string right. libraries and what have you. I mean, is that what you're trying to find when you're making stuff or is it just... I mean, obviously, it'd be nice because you want to have a million-selling sound library, but is that what <laughs> drives it, or is it the, the the artistic side of it more? I'm well, there's a, there's there's two things. One is the just you know to connect with the article. There was an, a legal aspect, and the legal aspect is way too wide even to consider because uh, you need to know all the facts before even making a judgment or having an opinion. But then there's another aspect which is the ethical or let's say emotional attachment that an artist can have to a certain sound he created or, you know, he developed throughout the years by, you know, uh, 
listening to other things. But there's another aspect that is very important to mention in dance music, which is the function a certain sound has. Mm. In dance music, there, there, has, there, there are moments that need to happen because people dance in a certain way. They expect a certain piece to have a certain arch. So when you say, well, you sampled this, well, when you copied this particular thing, did you actually copy just the sound or did you copy an entire uh, frame of how dance music actually works? And in my case, for example, I never really started with the thought of, okay, now I'm going to create a sound that is going to become a signature sound. Uh, I think it happens the way that Dave was saying. You create something and you go, wow, you know what? This one is actually different. It gives me something. And then people start to, to like it and they start to use it. There are sounds that I did for, for Atmosphere and then uh, Omnisphere that uh, they were not treated by me uh, as, oh, this is gold, so this is special, this is different, and, and so I shouldn't even release it maybe. They're uh, all okay. sounds, you know. <laughs> They're all sounds. I'm creating this today, and today maybe it was a lucky day, and that sound happened to be more uh, recognizable. Uh, but I don't even think it's or, a good or, or, or even put into the right set of hands and used in a way that, you know... That right, made, yeah. right, but, but, but Dave was mentioning the playability. And this aspect today, and again, I mentioned the, the, the example of dance music... Playability might not be the, the, the factor. The function of that sound might be the factor. So mm. that snare that drops and then creates a, uh, an opening for people to, you know, and then... Put their hands <laughs> in the air. The yeah, exactly. There's a function more than a playability. Right. And, and it's That's... interesting to see how things evolve, you know. Yeah, no, that is an interesting point. I yeah, I mean, Mark, you because you 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 know you in your in your past you've been very much involved in in the dance music scene, you know, kind of on the cutting yeah. edge of that, and you know, sound as you you've spoken, you're very sp particular about like the the three hundred three, for instance, you know, it has to be exactly right. I mean, is there? Uh, do you still find it's something to do? Well, it's something to do with the texture, and I don't even know what it, it's. It's the way it tickles your inner ear. I suppose that's going to sound weird, and it has. I disagree with Dave. It has nothing to do with playability. It has something to do with something in the sonic structure of the sound that does something to you. I definitely agree with him that it's an emotional thing. There's a response to some sounds where you just go, oh, wow, what's that? And, and I've, I tend to like go through all my sound libraries and favorite those sounds and pull them out. And whenever I write a track with a lot of those sounds that I've gone you know that is the sound that is the sound that is the sound it mixes itself i don't have to sit there tweaking eqs or mucking around with plugins or anything in fact my my s1000 library just used to be constructed of those sounds and i could throw any combination of them together and it sounded like somebody had put effort into mixing the track and really i hadn't to be honest well you put effort in they somewhere even have ended up yeah well the, the effort goes in the choice of the sounds i suppose it feeds back into the earlier topic about pre-production um but so i mean sometimes like those sounds you find a sound you press a key and you hold it down and some and it just it does something all by itself that's that's uh you know the the kind of sound i i would so uh, and then i'm going to just jump back to the topic as well i mean uh we're talking about that snare sound but what about the big 
gated reverb tom sound that phil collins invented because that is on everything from the 80s onwards now if he turned around and said i want to patent <laughs> that technique for creating a big uh, kind of gated reverb drum ending behind toms i mean he could i wonder yeah god yeah, that'd be an interesting notion whether you can everyone, actually do that yeah, yeah i don't but, but there's something something interesting something useful actually that needs to be mentioned and in a way i'm going to defend dave even though he doesn't need me defending but when you are working on a instrument for other people to play playability is very important because for example in omnisphere yes there can be a sound that it's great but if it doesn't translate musically uh, what what is going <laughs> to I mean, people, it's not like a, 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 um, like a, a record that you listen to. you got to play with that sound. So playability is very important. And also, I think it makes sense for Dave. When you have a great sound, does it translate? Does it transpose well? Uh, does it make sense? If uh, Because in my hands, I have my own style in my work. But what if I give it to you and you have a completely different style? Can you yeah. get something yeah, out of so, it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not... Tend not well. I occasionally make sounds for other things, but I tend to, I tend to create sounds which I can come back to impressively and go, oh yeah, I know what that meant. So hmm. uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be played. It uh, is very play interesting. Ability. It is very interesting what you were saying, Diego, about the function, because you know, and I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why we've have this a uh, progression of fifths. Very often that chord progression is the, the first and the fifth. And that the f fifths, obviously, you know, if they're in the right key, what have you, have a, a very uplifting feel to them. So there's a yeah. sort of, there's a built-in atmosphere. And it's almost going back to, you know, uh, just the, the pure harmonic theory and then people are it's being distilled down to kind of you know it's almost like there's just one note that'll work and everybody go ooh, it has to have that one note it, but it, <laughs> it, it is isn't it it's kind of this distillation of the entire yeah. musicality of stuff but also you know things evolve too yeah, i mean a, a lot of djs a lot of producers they basically apply theory uh, out of experience out of out of seeing people reacting or not to a certain thing when you know, a hundred years ago, these notions were learned on paper. Now they are learned by seeing instinctively. These people, that, these people are actually enjoying it. They're responding to it, so it works. Yeah. Oh, there's there's, there's tons of. I'm sure, Mark, this would be fascinating for one of your uh, sound workshops. Um, the, the notion yeah, of absolutely. But yeah, I'd love to. It'd be, be great to explore it more frequently, but uh, more more in depth. But unfortunately, we have to go. Well, at least I have to go. Uh, I can't speak for you all, but uh, seeing as I've got the electronic switch in my hand, I guess that means we have to terminate the uh, the broadcast. But thank you very very much, everybody, for coming. That was really interesting. And um, just want to say uh, before I go, actually, I'll, I'll just reiterate that uh, uh, Isotope competition. Uh, yes, remember you can win Isotope RX three, RX three no more noise hashtag uh, at sonic nick and at isotope inc if you if you send that to twitter i've got a little search that will find it and uh, create a list of uh, potential winners and you could possibly win isotope rx3 by next week so i want to say thank you everybody for coming thank you uh, diego for getting up early um on, I know you're on the West Coast and joining us been a pleasure as ever always good to have you on I, and don't forget Thank you can you go and get Diego's stuff at uh, his Feed Forward Sounds video series and the convolutions uh, at Diego Stocco all the links are there diegostocco.com right? Yeah yeah because I, I also added the PayPal option which was a popular request I couldn't figure it out earlier but now I did so if you go 
on my website. From there, you will see the different posts with the links. Thank Great. you for the opportunity to pitch this thing. <laughs> That's all right. Thank you very much for coming. And also, on the going slipping over a mere three and a half thousand miles to the other side of uh, America, the USA. There's Rich Hilton. Thank you very much for joining us too. Really appreciate it. And uh, and also for making the effort to come from China last week. That was uh, one of those kind of great moments straight off stage. <laughs> well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And thanks, Diego. I really love your work, man. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Rich. Thanks. And of course, we've got Dave Spears over there. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I, you know, I, how frustrating is it to have a Jupiter 8 there that you can't use because it doesn't work? On a well, scale of well, 1 to 10. It's about, at the minute, it's about a 6. I, I mean, we knew it wasn't going to be perfect, but seven of the voices work, one doesn't, and something got dropped on it at some point. Mm. So some of the sliders are looking like that instead of nice and perpendicular and uh anyway i'm taking it to the to mr kent spong tomorrow and hopefully he's going to work his magic on it in the next well 48 hours I think. <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> at least it's not so, going to break your back i suppose and that's the thing it's not like it's lugging a cs80 down the stairs right no 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 and he has to he actually kind of does skype stuff for us now like poke that flick that whack that take that card out and hit it with a stick so yeah, that's a relief. That <laughs> sounds like a yeah. brilliant way. I've got a Wurlitzer that's kind of dying over here, and it's. I'm like, I don't really don't want to lug that down the stairs. I've got a Wurlitzer here as well, which is dead. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's the power supply, but uh, we'll get through it anyway. Dave, thank you very much for joining us. It's been too long. I know you've thank been you. busy, and uh, yeah, keep an eye on what G4 Software up to g4software.com for your instrument needs, and. Mark Tinley over there in uh, in his kitchen with the fabulous professional setup this week. Thank you very much. I think somebody commented in uh, in the chat room uh, earlier on at the start of the show that you might have been using Ben Stiller's hair gel, which I thought was a great comment. <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly. I think it's just it's uh, anyway. But Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, MarkTinley.co.uk. You're very welcome. Are we going to see more of this? Are you, going to, are you going to bring this out for next week as well or next time you're on? Oh, maybe not, actually. I mean, the one thing I noticed about microphones is that whenever I want to do anything with a microphone, I've got to find all the things that relate to that. Right? That's true. So, <laughs> tube preamps and XLR things, and I coil all these things up and I put them away. And since we've moved house, uh, the majority of it is half of it's in storage and the majority of it's lost under the sofa. So I actually bought a Behringer... C1U, which is a USB microphone, which you just plug in the computer and it just supposed to work. So maybe I'll try that next week and, and we'll see if it does because it just strikes me that it could be useful to do that. Well, that's what I, I sometimes use one of those for a, a podcast guest. Um, um, except mine's just the XLR version. But yeah, they're all right. They're a little bit noisy, but you know, they're not very expensive. So, um, is, is that everybody? Have I said goodbye to everybody? I think I have. Well, that's it for this week. I'm now going to press the fade to black. I feel like um, the guy on children's TV in the UK who used to do a special request where he turned the lights off. <laughs> Here we go. I'm turning the lights off. Goodbye. Thanks to everybody in the chat room as well.